0: the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Summer is flying by. Quick reminder, that means that the PBI Annual Dinner is coming soon. The event will be in New York City on Thursday night, September 28th at the amazing Gotham Hall. More information can be found on the web at probonoinst.org or call Kelly Simon at 202-729-6691. We're grateful to all of our generous sponsors and supporters. Today, we're talking to Ted Howard from Wiley-Rhine. Ted spoke with us from his office a few blocks away from ours in Washington, DC. We discussed his transition to serving as the firm's first full-time pro bono partner, his meaningful pro bono work on behalf of inmates and prison reform efforts, the firm's pro bono program, and more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Howard, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Let's jump right in. Could you tell us about you? Share a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Sure. I um, grew up in New York and Connecticut. My father practiced medicine in New York for more than 40 years, and um, so we were uh, sort of a suburban family, but he... um, by either car or train, made his way into New York every day for many, many years on end. I went to Catholic parochial school, public high school, and then made my way out to the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana for college. I was a very avid high school athlete, not the most talented, but very passionate, and had some friends who um, were very, very successful football players who preceded me uh, at my public high school and went to Notre Dame to play and although I was uh, not talented enough to join them on the football field they did persuade me that it was a great school Um, so I made my way out there and really enjoyed my four years there and um, went straight from there to Harvard Law School uh, where I graduated in the class of 1981 Um, I spent my second summer um, after my second year of law school in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Washington. Um, And although um, I had a great experience, uh, I was persuaded that uh, being a prosecutor was not something that was in the cards for me, but I loved D.C. and um, couldn't imagine going anywhere else to work. So this is where I ended up, and I've been here ever since.
0: Fantastic. Let me step back for a minute because you mentioned that you went straight through from, from Notre mm-hmm. Dame to Harvard Law School. Why did you decide to become a lawyer?
1: My dad, as I mentioned, uh, practiced medicine. My mom was a registered nurse. They were very, very strong on education. Uh, I was the youngest of four children, and all of us were put through the rigors in terms of uh, my folks' expectations with regard to how we approached um our academic responsibilities, and um, although uh, my, old, my older brother, who was the oldest, and my older of my two sisters, who was second um, in line, both sort of gravitated towards the hard sciences and either considered or did actually follow in my dad's footsteps into medicine. Um, I was not uh, the strongest math or science student, (laughs) so um, if I was going to uh, sort of uh, maintain um, or live up to the expectations that my parents had sort of set in terms of us having professions, uh, law seemed like the logical uh, alternative for me. Uh, I was much stronger in the language arts than in the hard sciences, so... um, It came a little bit easier, and um, you know, I as I got into it, actually, sort of not just the academic aspect of it in law school, but the actual practical part of it in my summer jobs during law school, uh, I found that it was very, very comfortable for me, and um, you know, really, sort of what I wanted to do.
0: I love hearing about your parents. And in my family, that would be known as the we-can't-stand-the-sight-of-blood story. <laughs> we became <laughs> lawyers and not doctors. But. <laughs> right. So you talked about having a D.C. experience and uh, falling in love with the town. How did you get to wiley Rhine?
1: Well, I started uh, at a small firm, um, I guess medium-sized by the early 80s standards, about 45 lawyers, called uh, Hamelin Park which basically got swallowed up in a um, what was really an acquisition characterized as a merger uh, with a large Chicago firm. Um, I was at that firm for my first 14 years of practice. I finally left in 1994 to move on to the D.C. office of a New York firm where um, my principal insurance company client, uh, had a very strong relationship and was interested in having um, me and a couple of others from our, our my prior firm um, go over to the D.C. office of this firm where they already had a very strong um, working relationship. So we did that um, for five years. And then in the um, fall of 2000, uh, I got contacted one day by um, a colleague in the insurance practice over here at Wiley who um, indicated that they were looking for a couple of individual partners or a small group that might um, add some depth and um, trial experience to the existing insurance practice here. Um, and having had friends and colleagues at wiley Rhine since it was basically came into existence, in 1983 or 84, um, it was a, it was a good opportunity. Uh, I felt that we would be very compatible with the, uh, the existing practice group over here. And, um, frankly, getting out of the satellite office of a firm located elsewhere was very attractive as well. So, um, we came over our whole group, five of us came over in early in 2001.
0: How did you land in the insurance practice area to begin with? Is there a story there?
1: I guess there is. It's not all that interesting, <laughs> but um, I was sort of a general purpose litigator at my first firm and did a wide variety of different kinds of things, um, all of which I found you know, stimulating, interesting, et cetera. Um, but at about year six, um, at w- when I was still an associate, a uh, lateral partner came into the firm um, and brought with him a fairly su- substantial volume of large insurance litigation matters um, and he needed immediate support because he did not lateral in with any associates in tow um, and so I got uh, I got the call. <laughs> From the uh, from the management to uh, uh, to support this guy's practice, if I was willing to do so, um, and uh, sort of jumped into it, and before I knew it, I was a, I was beginning to become uh, a specialist in complex uh, insurance coverage matters.
0: And what did that mean? What were you doing? Tell us a little bit about your practice.
1: Right. Well, what it involved was representing a large property casualty company, which had, in earlier years, written liability policies for large corporate policyholders. And beginning in probably the late 70s, the law of toxic torts really sort of emerged, and uh, all of a sudden these companies that had engaged for decades in practices that uh, may have exposed their workers or others to asbestos, or they may have engaged in manufacturing practices that yielded pollutants that they basically dispersed into the environment. Um, they might have been engaged in manufacturing certain kinds of um, products that uh, were you know, thought to be safe and effective as used, but which... Um, you know, had side effects or if misused, uh, caused you know, catastrophic types of injuries. And all of those types of liabilities for the companies resulted in their seeking coverage under their liability insurance policies, sometimes many years after the fact of when they actually engaged in the conduct that gave rise to the liability. And so there were very complex contract interpretation issues as well as some public policy uh, issues for the courts that had not dealt with these types of um, coverage concerns uh, up until that time. And um, so we were basically engaged along with the often extremely capable competent counsel uh, for the policyholders in thrashing out before the courts how the policies should respond, if at all, to these this sort of new wave of types of uh, tort liability. Um, and that's what the cases were about. They were massive in terms of the dollars at stake. They were often massive in terms of the numbers of parties involved. Um, you know, a company like um, let's just take one, for example, uh, General Electric would have bought, um, you know, extensive levels of what we call primary coverage, first dollar response to liability. Um, and then on top of that, layers and layers of what it's called excess coverage in order to protect themselves in the event of a catastrophic loss. Now, when the policies were purchased, most likely it was thought that any such catastrophic loss would be a so-called Big Bang event, you know, one isolated incident that caused, um, you know, that resulted in an explosion or uh, the failure of a dam or whatever um, that um, would cause uh, a significant number of people to lose life or limb, but all pretty much concentrated at one particular point in time so that the policies that were on the risk, quote-unquote, at that time would be the ones that would respond, assuming that there was coverage at all. What was unique about the emerging tort liabilities that were coming into play in the late 70s through the 80s and into the 90s Um, was that basic business activity over a period of years resulted in exposure of individuals to certain injury-causing agents or chemicals or, or products where the courts basically were confronted with the determination as to, A, whether there was coverage at all, if so, B... Which policies, over the length of time that was implicated, um, would respond, and how, and by, and with, at at what level, or how much? So that's what it was all about.
0: That is a fantastic tutorial, and it's actually giving me flashbacks to my prior life as a products liability defense lawyer. So uh-huh. I, I instead think we'll f- flash forward a little. Let's kind of <laughs> zoom up to May 2014. When you had a big change, you became the firm's first full-time pro bono partner. Is there a right. story there? How did that come about?
1: Um, that came about really as a function, I think, of the beginning of um, this firm's sort of generational change. Um, there was certainly a strong and active pro bono culture in the firm. Um you know, as of the time that I arrived in 2001 and carrying forward, um, but as our management started to change from not just particular individual to particular individual, but really sort of the first generation, the, you know, the, the folks who broke off from Kirkland and Ellis to start Wiley Ryan in 1983. Um, had basically sort of run the you know run the firm been in charge of uh, management of the firm and as that group of folks started to recede um, from leadership positions in the firm and the second generation um, folks who had you know started at the firm as first year associates and come up through the ranks and become partners and now we're in a position to sort of take leadership roles, um, started assuming more control. Um, one of the consequences of that was the perception on the part of our management that we really needed to join um, with our peer, you know, the firms that we consider to be peer firms in Washington and making more of a pronounced commitment to pro bono. Um, and so when our managing partner, Peter Shields, um, mentioned just in sort of a casual offhand fashion, or maybe he's smarter than I think he is, but, um, that, you know, the management committee had, um, was sold on the idea of creating a position for a full-time pro bono partner, um, I just basically sort of blurted out, oh, I'll do that, um, I was, you know, had been actively engaged in pro bono work. Uh, I was immersed in a um, prisoner's class action at that point in time that was taking up a lot of my time. And it just seemed like a sort of logical next step for me uh, if the firm was willing to commit to that level um, that I should as well.
0: What do you think sparked that passion that you have for pro bono and access to justice?
1: Um, I think it really, uh, you know, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I do think that it really um, relates to how I was raised and, and who I was raised by. My parents were both, um, you know, engaged in the healing arts and they felt very passionately about being of service to people who needed their help um, and needed the things that they had to offer. Um, and, it, uh, you know, they weren't vocal about, you know, haranguing me or my, my siblings about giving back, quote, unquote. But I think just sort of every day in terms of the way that they um, live their lives, they convey to us um, how important it was for us to take such gifts as we had and make sure that we put them to work in the service of other people.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your role. How do you spend your time?
1: Well, um, I well certainly the concept <laughs> um, when I took the position was that I would continue to have an active practice. Um, it was important to me to have that be part of the understanding. and I think it's also it was important to the firm because of the matters that I was already involved in. Um But you know, certainly, I think the ideal concept was that I would spend about 50% of my time um, in active casework and about 50% of my time um, overseeing the administration of our firm's program and, um, you know, engaging and enhancing our relations with legal service providers and, you know, just making it easier for people to, uh, within the firm to, to get, oppor- get access to opportunities and to take advantage of those opportunities to the extent that they wanted to do so. Our pro bono committee, and we still have a very active and engaged pro bono committee, um, up until the time that the position was created that I filled, was chaired by one of our government contracts partners, very an outstanding guy, a great lawyer, and very committed to pro bono work, but very, very busy in terms of his own practice. And so um, you know, the administrative aspects of the of the program um, were in need of care and feeding, and um, it was certainly thought that I would be in a better position to do that in a on a full-time basis than. Uh, than, you know, the guy who had been our our pro bono uh, committee chair. Um, As it's turned out, (laughs) um, I have found it uh, difficult um, to disengage from the opportunity to be actively involved in the work. And I think it probably has more like 90% Um, casework and 10% administration uh, at this point.
0: That's interesting. So you may have already answered this, but is there anything that you wish you could be doing more of if you had more time?
1: Well, I certainly think that, um, you know, I don't don't kid myself that there isn't a trade-off and a potentially important trade-off. Um, associated with the degree to which I am engaged actively in repre- in representation of clients in pro bono matters because arguably um, more time devoted to the administrative aspects of running our program would only enhance the Prospects and the opportunities, and uh, for others, and the likelihood that we might have a higher level of engagement than we than we have, which is a you know certainly a good strong level, but it, it could it could be better. Um, and so, you know, there's no such thing. As the old saying is there's no such thing as a free lunch, and that's true. Um, and in this instance, what that means is that by Um, You know, being engaged in matters large and small that require the lion's share of my time um, and being responsive to court-imposed deadlines and client needs, et cetera, um, you know, has probably had a less positive overall um, impact on our pro bono program than might have been envisioned um when i took the position now i am not taking any you know heat for that um from our management everyone i think understands and appreciates um the commitment i've made in terms of you know being actively involved in matters that make a difference in clients lives and ideally shed some positive light on the firm um But nevertheless, you know, if I had more time, it would certainly be to, uh, it would be devoted to the administrative side of the, of the house.
0: What do you enjoy most about your work?
1: I think I enjoy the most the fact that I get up every morning and I come to work knowing that I'm going to be doing something that makes a significant difference for someone. Um... The large insurance cases were intellectually stimulating and challenging and important to our clients. And I obviously never felt that I gave anything less than, you know, full and complete effort. The kinds of cases that they were and the kinds of dollars at stake tended to result in resolutions that cause either significant amounts of money to be um, kept in house at our clients because we defeated a claim for coverage or large amounts of money changing hands between company A, and insurance company A, and manufacturing company B at the end of, um, you know, a lot of discovery and a lot of depositions and a lot of motions practice and both companies coming to the conclusion at the end of the day that neither wanted to cast their fate to a jury. Um, And so certainly over the period of time that I did that work from about 1986 or 87 through um, about six months after I took the position uh, as full-time pro bono partner and weaned myself from my remaining insurance responsibilities, Um, you know, there was a lot that I had done um, over and over again. I knew how to do it. I feel like I knew how to do it fairly well, but I didn't typically, (laughs) uh, I can't say 100%, but I didn't typically lose sleep um, over, you know, what was going to be happening the next day and what impact that was going to have on the case um pro bono work is very different in that every matter that you handle is of critical crucial significance to an individual or group of individuals and how their lives are going to be and um you know that's energizing it's also frightening (laughs) um sometimes but it's always energizing and um You know, so that's what I really like about it.
0: So you've been in this pro bono role for a little over three years now, what what surprised you the most in that time?
1: I think what has surprised me is the extent to which I feel like my commitment to work has increased rather than either stayed the same or decreased. I think, you know, conceptually because the thought was that I would pretty much split my time between cases and administration, that my expectation was that at least on the administrative end of things, um, you know, my hours might be a little more regular and that sort of thing. Yep. But, um, you know, there's no question about the fact that my time commitment to work has increased um, pretty significantly um, from – Summer of 2014 to now.
0: If we had a third guest talking with us today, that would be the TED, the you from May 2014. What would you tell them? Do you have anything to say to the sort of looking back to the you from then?
1: Um yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I would probably just say um be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Good luck, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but only in a joking way.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your pro bono work, and you've you've already highlighted some of it. You, you've been really involved in a number of major prisoner rights and prison reform matters. It's mm-hmm. a crowded market of potential pro bono opportunities. So first, what attracted you to these matters?
1: I think when I was, uh, when I felt, you know, towards the latter end of my years as an associate, um, that I was really ready to sort of take on matters that I could handle on my own. I felt like I had sort of at least learned enough about the craft to not do any harm to someone's <laughs> situation, even if I couldn't make it better. Um at that point, uh, the D.C. Prisoners Legal Services Project, which was a small standalone organization, um, was sort of, I don't know if advertising is the right term, but they were um, they were certainly making it known in the legal community that they would welcome the assistance of uh, whatever pro bono lawyers might be interested in, in taking matters with them. Um, and I don't know if it necessarily occurred to me um, as significantly then as it has in subsequent time. Um, but I think as, you know, we're now sort of in a time period in society where there's a lot of recognition with regard to the, the, both the phenomenon and the impact of mass incarceration, um, particularly as it relates to the African-American community. Um, I don't know if I had thought it through to that point then, but in taking my first case from the Prisoners Project, um, you know, which was a case involving six uh, African-American men who were all uh, jailed at, uh, at the D.C. jail and who basically had been subjected to um, vigilante justice, so to speak, by a sort of renegade band of guards who were pulling people out of their cells and administering physical beatings and spraying people in the face with mace and stuff like that. Um, you know, it, it just seemed to me then, and particularly as I thought more about it over time, that not uh, having the temperament or necessarily the inclination to be a criminal defense lawyer, but nevertheless feeling very passionately about the plight of uh, folks who are subject to the criminal justice system and particularly African-American men who are subject to the criminal justice system, that prisoners' conditions of confinement work that would make life at least, a little bit more livable for people incarcerated and that would allow them to come out of the system feeling a little less dehumanized, um, became important to me. And so I've continued to, to, you know, try to have at least some work that I'm doing at any given point in time, uh, involve those issues.
0: You also had an interesting prison case in Virginia. Could you tell us a little bit about that one?
1: Sure. Um, That's a case that was um, initially um, brought to light by the Legal Aid Justice Center in Charlottesville. Um, John Grisham gave a fairly substantial chunk of money to the LAJC um, to create Uh, an institutionalized persons project uh, at some point, um, I think probably as a result of a lot of the issues that he had chosen to write about in his novels. Um, And so uh, shortly after the publicity about this grant that he had given them, um, women from this uh, facility called the Fluvanna Correctional Center for Women which is one of the two women's prisons in the Virginia Department of Corrections system, and ironically the, uh, the prison to which folks that have serious medical issues are sent for supposedly superior care. Um, the LAJC started getting flooded with letters from women complaining about the medical care at the facility, and um, they wanted very much to do something about it, they did not have um, a, a significant background in institutional reform-type litigation, and so they um, brought the matter to the attention of the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, which I've been engaged in very actively uh, as a board member um, and as a um, as someone who has worked on lawyers' committee cases uh, in um, late in the in 2008 and um we had a meeting in early 2009 uh the lawyers committee called me and asked me if i thought wiley would um would be uh, willing to get involved in the case and um so that's when we started working on it and through a lot of due diligence to make sure that what we were hearing was consistent with uh medical records that we had to accumulate and review and Um, we had to walk, um, our clients through the exhaustion of remedies process, which is fairly rigorous in the context of federal prison litigation. Um, and we had to try to give the Department of Corrections the opportunity to, um, adopt some self-help measures before we took them to court. Um, and we eventually worked our way through all of that by July of 2012 Uh, at which point we filed our class action complaint in the uh, U.S. District Court for the Western District of Virginia in Charlottesville. Um, We survived a motion to dismiss. We um, survived two or three different changes in the identity of the private for-profit company that provides the medical care at the facility and the disruptions that each of those changes caused. Uh, we finally, um, got to the point where we, um, filed our papers for class certification, um, and got a favorable ruling on that in the summer of 2014. Uh, we then had dispositive motions practice. The Department of Corrections tried to get the whole case kicked out on summary judgment. Um, we defeated their motion in its entirety and actually won a couple of issues ourselves. Uh, on summary judgment so that we wouldn't have to try those issues. And then on the verge of uh, the beginning of trial, early December of 2014, um, the uh, Department of Corrections had a startling change of heart and indicated that they wanted to settle the case as quickly as possible and um, adopt the measures that we were advocating for um, to try to make things better in terms of the medical care at the prison. So, um, we entered into a memorandum of understanding with them uh, right on the eve of trial. Uh, We negotiated over the course of about eight and a half months to (laughs) get to the point where we actually had a settlement agreement with all of the relevant terms and conditions agreed upon. Uh, We presented that to um, to the court in September of 2015. Uh, We had a fairness hearing uh, at the end of 2015, and in February of 2016, the court entered an order approving the settlement agreement. And that would be a wonderful story if it was all over and done with, but unfortunately, um, enforcing the settlement agreement has proved to be uh, challenging, so we're still working on that matter.
0: Well, thank you for sharing. i sort of it pops into my head that it's sort of an ongoing saga, but it's in, yeah, it in, is incredible work and, and really meaningful. Are there examples of other pro bono matters that have been particularly meaningful to you that you might be able to share?
1: I think it's all been meaningful in a, in a, in a, in a real way. Um, I did work on a death penalty case. Uh, I took, um, a case in 1991 from the ABA Post-Conviction Death Penalty Project, which at that time was being run by Esther Lardent, someone near and dear to your heart. Yeah, it
0: all comes full circle, right?
1: Um, And I represented uh, my client in that matter for 18 years. Um, We went through federal habeas corpus proceedings uh, subsequent to the denial of cert, Um, uh, against us uh, by the Supreme Court in the habeas matter, we initiated collateral proceedings relatively novel at that point in time um, in conjunction with um, the Innocence Project, the original Innocence Project in New York, uh, Barry Sheck's organization, um, seeking to compel the state to produce for uh, purposes of DNA testing certain critical elements of, um, of the physical evidence from our client's murder trial, uh, which had taken place in 1983. Um, we fought uh, about the DNA evidence for a number of years. We finally got to the point where the court allowed us to take some discovery with regard to um, the chain of custody and where the evidence might be and and whether it should be compelled. Uh, And unfortunately at that point in time, um, we finally sort of came to the end of the road because the state uh, was unable to come up with the evidence. They claim not to have known what happened to it. Their forensic lab had gone through several uh, office moves during the course of the number of years that the case was pending. They speculated that it had gotten lost in transition uh, at one or the other of those moves. Um, And unfortunately, under uh, the Supreme Court uh, precedent in Youngblood versus Arizona, in the absence of being able to show um, that. Evidence was intentionally destroyed. um, You don't have a due process uh, cause of action um, based on the absence of the evidence. And we were unable to show that anyone had consciously destroyed the evidence that we were after. So there was nothing for us to test. And in the absence of anything for us to test, Uh, the court concluded that the execution could be carried out, and my client was executed um, in February of 2009. It was um, probably the most emotional commitment I've ever made to anything that I've ever done as a lawyer, um, including being present at the execution, and because I told my client that I would be there and it was um, so that was probably the most significant thing I've ever done.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing it. I, I don't have a smooth transition <laughs> to go from that to, to sort of anything else that's just, yeah I don't think
1: there is one. No,
0: it's just uh, it's just incredible. Um, and I, it's the type of thing that stays with us, you, right? Forever. You, you talk about how do you process it? You you process it sort of day by day for the rest of your life. I mean, it's, it's it really, uh, it's, it's incredible stuff. Um, I will say we're, we're speaking, it's July, it's summer, it's summer associate season. What, what advice right. do you have for law students and lawyers who are just starting their careers?
1: Um, you know, I think, Get in, get started early. Um, to the extent that you feel like um, you either went to law school because you believe that it, you would, you know, do good in the world, or because in large law firms, pro bono opportunities tend to provide the best professional development, training um, opportunities for young lawyers that otherwise, you know, maybe. Um, at the low end of the totem pole on big cases where all they get to do is grunt work um, or whatever it is, Um, or because, you know, of of a personal um, connection in your individual life that makes you want to have the opportunity to do something positive with regard to an issue that's affected a family member or whatever. Um, Whatever it is, and it took me a while, I think, to come to this realization myself Um, As I mentioned, it really wasn't until well into my time as an associate where I felt like um, I was ready to, you know, handle the responsibility of being a lead on a matter, um, a pro bono matter. Um, You know, people, the need is, is staggering and people need help. And your Legal education and your law degree is basically a license that other people don't have to provide a certain kind of assistance to people in need that is, um, you know, invaluable. And so, even if you're not so sure that you're ready, get involved early um, because that person whoever it is is going to be better off with you sort of stumbling around learning as you go along um then they would be without you um and so i think that's um you know that's the the lesson if there's one that i could impart um if you have the commitment for whatever reason you know don't don't wait until you're a fourth or fifth year associate to, you know, to get to dive right in. Um, and I, you know, I think over time we have here at Wiley, um, you know, in appreciation of sort of that sentiment um, made uh, work on at least pro, one pro bono matter um, sort of a compulsory element of our summer program um, so that when folks come back, if they do, as full-time associates, you know, a year out uh, from the end of their summer here, they have already, you know, had the experience. They, they know what it's like to be engaged. They understand the benefits that uh, they might derive. They understand the benefits that the clients clearly derive from their involvement um, and they're anxious to get back into it, um, you know, within like a week or two of when a new associate class starts in the fall. I'm, I begin to get calls from people about what's going on, how can I get involved, et cetera. And that's a, that's a very positive thing.
0: That's great. Well, we are fired up. I think the Notre Dame coaching staff could call on you to <laughs> motivate the troops, you know. Um, Ted, <laughs> <laughs> let's wind down with this. Who is your pro bono role model? Feel free to pick more than one, and why?
1: Um, I think for me, uh, people like um, Tom Williamson, who was the partner at Covington who passed away um, earlier this year, Um, people like Ben Wilson, who's the managing partner at Beverage and Diamond, people like the late John Payton, Um, those were my role models. Um, I didn't necessarily think that I was going to be a private sector, big firm lawyer long-term when I started. Um, And seeing the incredible competence and capability and um, ease almost, I know it wasn't easy um, because I've learned over time doing it myself that it's not easy, but um, the seeming grace and ease with which those guys and people like them, um, particularly, you know, for myself as, as African-American lawyers in big firms, the way that they manage to sort of balance their commitment to the community um, and their, the you know, demands of their practice and flourish in both um, venues, uh, was really very powerful to me, very important to me. And, um, you know, I certainly appreciate having had the opportunity to see people like that function in the role that I was trying to sort of cultivate for myself.
0: What a wonderful note to end on. Ted, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure and incredibly inspiring.
1: Thank you, Arena. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much to Ted for making the time to be with us. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're listening on iTunes or what's now known as Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave a review. It's quick and easy to do. You could just leave a rating or add some comments, whatever you'd like. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Hey, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to bono at probonoinst.org. For all of us here, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.